You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back. Hey. Thank you. Good to see you guys again. Good to be here. Several years ago, I read a really wonderful book called The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes. This is, it's an excellent read. I actually highly recommend it. It's super engaging um, and it goes, like, it really goes into the personalities of the people involved as well as the history of the, the atomic bomb. And it goes into the discovery of all the processes that were necessary to the creation of the bomb, including, like, nuclear chain reactions and nuclear fission, like, the the scientists who figured out that those were possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it also talks about the incredible efforts that scientists put into each stage of the process. Uh, <laughs> so the first step to making the bomb was to create a functioning nuclear reactor to just like show that that could be done. Right. Um, okay. And also, I feel like you're about to go through like how to make a nuclear bomb on the podcast. Well, we we may not be able to export this show to other countries now. <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm uh, assuming the science is the same no matter where you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually going to veer away from bombs and toward reactors. Okay, okay. But uh, <laughs> one of the other reasons to to create a reactor in the first stages of the Manhattan Project was to produce plutonium for bombs because that's how you make it. But um, gotcha, yep. I just. For what I'm going to talk about, I want to give a quick recap of how a nuclear reactor works. So you need a a radioactive material. It's usually uranium. And during natural radioactive decay, the atoms of uranium will split. That's called fission, producing atoms of other elements, heat, and two or three neutrons. Uh, The neutrons can then go on to hit other atoms of uranium, and that causes them to fission or split and release more neutrons. And then if you get enough uranium in one place, this reaction becomes self-sustaining. It's a nuclear chain reaction. Uh, And so the process to get this functioning, this first functioning reactor took about three years. It was a huge effort. Um, It was led by the famous physicist Enrico Fermi at the University Mm -hmm. of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And the world's first nuclear reactor was built under the viewing stands of the football stadium. (laughs) Um... Okay. Yeah, it was not shielded in any way. Just mm-hmm. FYI, uh, of course not. Uh, it was no. it was pretty low powered, but it went critical. It went critical on December second, nineteen forty two, and it was called Chicago Pile One because it was literally a giant pile of bricks of mm-hmm. uranium metal interspersed with bricks of graphite, and uh, this was highly purified graphite, and it acted as a moderator. So what that means is it it slows the neutrons down. Um, right. so that they can fission. Because if they're going too fast, uh, the uranium atoms like won't catch the neutrons and fission. They'll just sort of go past. Okay. So for the process to work, there has to be this moderator to slow everything down. Modern nuclear reactors generally use water as a moderator, uh, which has the advantage of being you know, easy to find and also a coolant. So it does double duty. It does help. Uh, 
Yeah. And modern nuclear reactors also have, like, they're obviously very complicated systems. And one of the things they have is control rods, which are made of an element that can absorb neutrons without fissioning. Um, so examples right. are like boron or silver, but there are some others. And these are used okay. to stop the reactor when necessary. Okay. So just, just random question. And I don't know if sure. you'll know this or not. Why use those elements to, like, they, they just don't melt? Or, like, why use, like, boron or silver as, like, the, the rods? You know, I'm not sure exactly which elements are usually used for control rods in nuclear facilities. I think there are a number of elements that can have that function. But I was just giving boron and silver as a couple of examples because they come up a little later in what I'm going to talk about. Oh, okay. I believe, Rachel, to, a quick, simple answer to your question is that they use elements that are good at catching those free neutrons mm-hmm. and not letting them fly around. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's what the that's what they're there for. Okay. Cool. Because most of the time the control rods are sort of hanging up away from the uranium if the reactor is going, but if they want to stop the reactor, they lower the control rods in. Oh. And okay. then the then the rods are going to absorb the neutrons and prevent the fission from happening. Okay. That makes a little more sense. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um. So all of this is sort of background to say that what happens next is is pretty surprising. So our story begins with a a French physicist named Francis Perrin, who was analyzing some uranium ore from Gabon, which is a country in West Central Africa, for a little Mm -hmm. geography reminder. And uranium ore naturally contains a mix of two different isotopes, uranium-238 and uranium-235. So U-235 is the stuff that's really important for nuclear reactions. It fissions easily. um, And... It is a small percentage of uranium ore. It's always 0.720%. And yeah, it's not a lot. And in order to be used in modern nuclear reactors or in weapons, the uranium is enriched. You've probably heard the term enriched uranium. And what that means is they go through a process, usually spinning it in centrifuges, to collect more uranium-235 and kind of add it together so that there's enough of it that they can use um so uh dr perrin was very surprised to see that the ore from gabon instead of 0.720 percent of u-235 had only 0.717 percent u-235 that doesn't sound like a lot but this was actually a very alarming discrepancy um because Usually the only reason that you would see uranium that, the, that was this depleted in U-235 mm-hmm. would be if it had already been used in an enrichment process <laughs> right. and would be like the leftovers. I don't want to see that. Yeah. Oh. yeah. So like, they're oh. like, where did this missing oh, uranium no. go? We need to find it. Uh-oh. People don't generally like to discover uranium missing. No. Yeah, that doesn't um, seem like a good omen. <laughs> no. But... As it turns out, they checked everything carefully and they went to the mine that it came from. Uh, It's in Oklo, Gabon. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I have no idea. And all of their tests showed that this was natural, completely unmanipulated uranium ore. So the only remaining conclusion was that this mine in Oklo, Gabon had at some point in the distant past been a natural nuclear reactor. 
What? Uh, I had a feeling that's where the story was going. <laughs> yeah. Oh, In no. fact, they eventually discovered 16 different sites that had been small reactors within this one mine in Oklo. That's so amazing. Too many. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, and you don't, I, 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 I first don't... heard about this story years ago, and I remember he, seeing someone talk about like a naturally occurring nuclear reactor, and you're like, what? I'm sorry. Hold what? on. These are like huge technological marvels that we've had to work to create and nature just did it on its own. Exactly. What? It's I, so I mean, so to weird. Be fair, Rachel is still broken over this. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I am. Uh, but also to be fair, Kirk. Is the, the sun not going through nuclear fission and like a nuclear reaction? No, it's going no. through nuclear word, fusion. No. fusion. Fusion. So different. Yeah. Got different. it. Different. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. That means that it's need, just do we need doing to sing... it by itself. <laughs> do we need to sing the song for you, Rachel? There's a song? The sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear furnace. Uh, where hydrogen, where is hydrogen is built into helium at a temperature of millions, millions of degrees. degrees. Anyways, uh, apparently we need That's to so beautiful. Uh, <laughs> educate. Uh, that was not my best singing voice either. Nor mine. Uh, we need to, you know, we'll send you some links, Rachel. Sounds yeah. good. Uh, I, that's I, a, I think I just that's got a They Might Be Giants confused, song, everybody. But, oh, I love They Might Be Giants. They're so good. Anyway. Uh, anyway, to get back to our story, it is indeed <laughs> possible to have a natural nuclear reactor. So this possibility Horrifying. had been put forward, yeah, <laughs> it had been put forward by scientists in the 1950s. Uh, in particular, there was a 1956 paper by physicist Paul Kuroda, um, and it, he laid out the conditions that he believed would be necessary. So in order to form a natural nuclear, nuclear reactor, there are four things that you need. One, the uranium ore has to be rich in uranium, and it has to have a thickness of at least two-thirds of a meter. Whoa. So that the yeah, okay, that's yeah. a lot. <laughs> I mean, I don't know I mean, if it is in the context of, of a mine, but yeah. Um, so uh, that's in order that the there's occasional natural spontaneous fission in U two thirty eight, and I guess in U two thirty five, so that there's enough of the material together that that can lead lead to a self sustaining fission reaction in the U-235 component. Okay. Um, the uranium metal itself must have a high amount of U-235. Okay. Um, a moderator must be present. And as a reminder, that's like the water or the graphite right, right, that right. Okay. Um, like slows the neutrons down. And uh, there cannot be a lot of material that would absorb neutrons without fissioning. So like silver or boron. So no natural control rods, in other words. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these conditions, like, maybe they don't sound all that difficult. I don't know. Uh, so uh, why don't we find these natural reactors everywhere? The only evidence that we've ever found of any existing has been in this one mine in Gabon. And those reactors were active about 2 billion, billion with a B, years ago. Um, so... The key piece here is that the proportion of U-235 that the uranium contains has to be right. So as I mentioned, worldwide, it is currently 0.720%. That mm -hmm. has not always been the case. 
Oh, of course. Yeah. When the Earth was formed, about 30% of uranium was U-235 isotope. Oh. Yeah. That's part of how we know how old the Earth is. Yeah. Right. But it's gone steadily down (laughs) because of radioactive decay. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. So about 2 billion years ago, when this, um, when these reactors formed in Oklo, it turns out to have been kind of a sweet spot for natural reactor formation. So at that point, U-235 was about 3.6% of uranium, which is high enough to sustain a reaction. But the question is, why hadn't it happened earlier when there was even more U-235? Well, is there not enough of the other stuff? Or like the... Well, they think it was not that uranium was not concentrated enough. Oh, so like okay. at the beginning of the Earth's existence, all the uranium atoms were basically like mostly spread out mm, into like, different Wee! places. Yeah. Okay. And to be concentrated, they have to be transported by water into a concentrated place. Um, but uranium is not very soluble in water unless it is oxidized. And... Until about 2.4 billion years ago, there wasn't a lot of oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere. But at that point... We talked about the great oxidation event in one of our episodes. The great oxidation Mm -hmm. event, um, which we talked about. And suffice to say that the Earth went from an atmosphere with very little oxygen to an atmosphere with a lot of it. And so that allowed the uranium to move with the water and be deposited in greater concentrations in specific places. And this oclocyte was um, sandstone, so uh, where these deposits were formed. And so also that lets in water. So there mm-hmm. was the availability of water as a moderator. And yeah. there were no significant amounts of neutron absorbers, like boron or silver. Okay. So the conditions in that place were just right. Now, we don't know if there might have been other uh, natural reactors from Earth's past, Possibly they, been, yeah. yeah, they they possibly exist and we haven't found them yet, or they've mm-hmm. been destroyed by geological forces in the last two billion years. Um, there is a lot of but, that as well. Yeah, who knows? We may we may find another someday. I'm gonna uh, hope for no. <laughs> well, I mean, it's I guess cool, but also, mm. but. So the, so the reactors lasted, they went for about like a couple hundred thousand or a couple, I think a couple hundred thousand years, it said. And uh, I think it was they kind were, of like on and off yeah. over time too. Yeah. So they were no longer going when mm-hmm. they were discovered. Right. And hadn't been going for a long time. Uh, I got a lot of good information for this episode from a Scientific American blog post from July 2011 by Evelyn Mervine and an IAEA website article from august 2018 by laura gill and that is what i have to tell you guys about natural nuclear reactors this week very cool didn't Thank know you. i had to worry i mean i don't have to worry about that but you don't have to like, worry you, you literally don't yeah no. <laughs> i'm gonna think about it for a while though you still Thanks, seem Victoria. pretty disturbed though yeah <laughs> makes me just vaguely uncomfortable i can tell well (laughs) we're gonna have a break and when we come back kirk will have something entirely fresh that hopefully won't make you as uncomfortable well we'll see okay (laughs) all right (laughs) 
Kirk here with a quick note. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It helps other lovers of The Strange find our show. You can also find and follow us on social media. Search for Strange by Nature Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or come visit us at strangebynaturepodcast.com. We'll see you there. Now, back to the show. You know, welcome back, everyone. I'm, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here. But are either of you Harry Potter fans? I know Rachel is really <laughs> a big Harry Potter fan. <laughs> I got so excited when you said I have... The face. Uh, my, my face. It doesn't work on an audio medium. I literally have a Harry Potter tattoo. Kirk, you know this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, I don't know, I, I, but Victoria, are you much of a fan? Yeah, or? I, I like Harry Potter just fine. You know, I read all the books. I saw all the movies, okay. but okay. only once. And like, yeah, it's fine. I'm not a huge fan, though. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, hopefully some of our, our some of our listeners are probably fans or at least familiar with the franchise, mm-hmm. either in book or movie form. Uh, you may recall uh, in year one, book one, uh, Harry is in his very first class with Professor Snape. Mm-hmm. And Snape kind of wants to put him Ooh. in his place. Which and is so he, he so asks dumb, him but a, I have a different series of like, that. <laughs> yeah, he, he asks him like a series of rapid fire questions. Like, do you know this? Do you know that? Do you know this? Clearly knowing that Harry won't know the answer. And he's like, oh, yeah. well, apparently, you he, know, fa- he was raised by mu- He was raised by muggles. Why would he know these things? Like everybody, right. ugh, anyway. Well, one of the questions he asked them is where would you find a bezoar? And Harry, of course, has no idea. Uh, uh-huh. And later in the book, The Half-Blood Prince, uh, Harry sees one. written in his potion, potions book. Well, he does use one. He sees written in his potions book. Um, he has, there's like a list of different antidotes, mm-hmm. the different poisons. And someone uh-huh. has scrawled in the book, just shove a bezoar down their throats. Yeah. Uh, which is information he later uses by the way to save someone's life which now spoiler alert that's a huge clue who the half-blood prince is right but that's i was not the about this to be podcast. like uh, spoiler no spoilers okay okay so at the suggestion of one of our listeners uh thank you eric uh today i'm talking about bezoars <laughs> they're a real thing that's a real Wow. Indeed. Indeed. I am very intrigued. Go on. I bet you are. I knew you would be. Uh, In the Harry Potter universe, universe? Universe. Sure. Uh, A bezoar is a stone from the stomach of a goat. Uh, Now, you might be tempted to think that that means a goat swallowed a stone. No. Uh, And indeed, animals do sometimes swallow rocks, even on purpose. Um, birds will like store small stones in their gizzards to help crush seeds. Yeah. I even have in my personal collection two gastroliths, which are stones from the stomach of a dinosaur, because you know, of course yeah. I do. Yeah, why would a you? <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? I mean, a bezoar no. is a very real thing, and it's usually not a stone at all, even though it may look like one. Is it like so a bezoar, bladder type thing? Uh, I'll let you get into it. Uh, like a gallstone. Yeah, uh, kind of. That's kind of what I was thinking too. Yeah, and there's even sometimes I think gallstones have been lumped in with bezoars, although technically mm. they're kind of a separate thing. In uh, any the word case, bezoar actually comes really gross. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you, but it makes it really That's gross okay. as a like antidote to poisons. Shove this yeah, thing. Yeah, eat this. 
That oh. is in somebody yeah. that was in a goat's belly. Ugh. I would have to agree. Uh, the word bezoar uh, actually comes to us from Persian, albeit like mangled up along the way. Mm. And the word literally means antidote. Oh. So well, the use go. in Harry Potter is historically accurate. They were actually thought to be antidotes. Um, they were traditionally been used in magic and something I refuse to call medicine. So let's just call it <laughs> folk healing beliefs. Um, the idea really was that swallowing one could cure any poisoning, which mm -hmm. was a mm. pretty wild idea. Now, I don't know how commonly, you know, A, people had them around in their house and B, how commonly people were poisoned. So it probably wasn't something people tested out a whole, whole lot. It was just sort of like, oh, everyone knows you use a bezoar for poisoning. I mean, Do they happen go... to be so, made of activated charcoal? Yeah, if they, that, that would be helpful if they were. Well, yeah. also, you got to think about the at least... 17 and I think 1800s, especially in like Western Europe, poisoning was a really popular way to get rid of people you didn't like. Sure. Well, this was like, this was even like way before that too. You ah. know, we're talking like mm -hmm. 14 to 1500s or, and, and possibly quite further back than mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. given that these words, you know, are the word is even a loan word from, uh, you know, uh, from Persia. And it probably took some time for that word to, you know, get into, uh, other languages and whatnot. So mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know the exact year where it's thought that this idea first came about, but it's been around for a long time. And it doesn't necessarily have to be tied to goats. Although that's sort of, I think, especially in Harry Potter and some other traditions, it's like people talk about goats. Mm -hmm. um, but they can be found in the stomach of pretty much any kind of animal, including humans. Oh, I am now looking yeah, at my now, stomach. I'm concerned. Uh -huh, <laughs> would I know if uh -huh. I had one? Uh, maybe. Uh, maybe you would know if you had okay. a big one you you could okay. actually have uh, like a small one and you would have no idea as they get larger you would you would definitely know uh i think in you know if you go back people were probably you know who are butchering animals uh -huh. uh, hopefully not humans but butchering animals um found these indigestible stones in their stomachs and were probably quite amazed like what what is this how this get here mm -hmm. um so maybe it was a little wonder that people thought that they were magical or had some kind of magical properties mm -hmm. uh that certainly isn't true, by the way. Um, there is at least one story out there of Bezoars being put to the test, which I think is kind of interesting. In 1565, the famous surgeon Ambrose Paré uh, was working in the court of King Charles IV. Mm. And one of the king's cooks was caught stealing silver like cutlery. Mm -hmm. And that's a big no-no, steal from the king. So he was sentenced yep. to death. Mm. And the usual method was hanging. Um, but Paré suggested an alternative. So the cook could choose either hanging or he could agree to be poisoned and then given a bezoar to swallow. And if he survived, he could go free. Huh. So uh, I mean, if you're going to die what does he anyways, have to lose? right? So naturally he took the chance. Yeah. And guess what? It, he died. Work. It didn't work. No, it didn't work. Yeah. The cook lived for seven agonizing, painful hours as the poison oh. worked on him mm. and he died. Uh, so Pari concluded that bezoars uh, can't, in point of fact, cure all poisons. Uh, so interestingly, uh, like I said, you, you, know, you, could, you could have one right now. Uh, mm -hmm. If you did have a bigger one, though, it's going to cause some problems. Uh, so we're talking like discomfort, pain, bleeding, et cetera. They can literally start to like block up your GI tract. They can be mm -hmm. not just in the stomach, but anywhere throughout the GI tract. 
Um, Ooh, and when I dug into good. this topic, because I wanted to learn more about it, I discovered that there's actually five main types of visors oh. that humans can get. And some are the same as what animals get, but uh, certainly some are kind of uniquely human. And that huh. will become obvious. Here's the list. And I'll do okay. my best on pronunciation for these. First up, we have lactobezoars. Can you guess what they're made out of? Uh, lactic acid. Or like uh, lactic like, like, milk. Like, yeah, like lac. Oh, lactose. Lactose. Yeah. yeah that's like what milk I said. protein. Milk. This can occur, especially if you give uh, like formula to premature babies. Mm. Uh, they have some digestion problems and it'll basically dehydrate and you'll get this like massive, oh. essentially, I guess, lactose. Uh, well, lactose would be the sugar. I don't know. What is that? Milk, it, milk, milk stuff. Protein. proteins. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, that's real bad for premature babies, but yeah. not something you probably need to worry about as an adult. Um, second, we have pharmacobezoars. Drugs. Hmm. Yeah. Basically, it's seen in people who've overdosed, on t especially on time-release medications. Okay, There's something okay. about that much time-release medicine. It basically just, just gets balled up into a solid, indigestible mass in your stomach. Part of the idea behind a, a time-release medication is that it's hard to digest. Yeah. So it takes mm -hmm. some time, so it slowly releases. And if you get like handfuls at once, that's Yeah, they have like a, a coating on them that is hard to break down in the stomach, I think. So yeah. Kinda, yeah that's, I guess could ball that, up. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Now, do either of you have a cat? I know, Rachel, you have a cat. I used to when I was a kid. I don't have a cat. But Is it a hairball? Oh, you don't. I don't, but I used to have uh, my roommate, my old roommate had two cats. Your and old roommate had a cat. There you my go. partner has a cat. Okay. I gotcha. So you spend time with well, cats. This, a lot, yeah. <laughs> you ever seen a cat get a hairball? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so yes. that's basically a trichobezoar. And they're basically yeah. hairballs like cats get. Humans can get these too, uh. which might seem surprising because we don't usually like groom ourselves by, you know, licking hair that's coming off and whatnot. But there is actually, unfortunately, a uh, like compulsive hair eating disorder mm, where yeah. people pull out their own hair yeah. and then feel compelled to eat it. Right. And this can eventually fill up their stomachs. Um, and as a, and when it gets really large, it can actually grow a tail of hair that extends into the intestines. Uh, and when nice. this happens, it's called Rapunzel syndrome. <laughs> which is, oh. I mean, uh, a clever name, but like, hmm. that's, that's a really tough situation for someone to be in. Uh, now, the next up, we have uh, phytobezoars, and these are probably the type that were historically thought to cure poison. They're an indigestible mass of plant material in the stomach. It mm. could be like seeds, fiber, etc. Yeah. Um, and they get like packed into an indigestible ball that just gets so big that it can't leave the stomach. Okay. If you're eating some now, really woody kind of Yeah, things. I guess. And this is mostly happening to people who have some sort of digestive problem. Because okay. usually we can break all this stuff down. Um, but, you know, with those ones, it's where maybe somebody is really old, their digestion's not really working quite right, and then this can happen because they're mm -hmm. just, they're not digesting their food, yeah. basically. Yeah, or if they have the any last, sort of GI the, issues on, on their own. Exactly, anyway, yeah. exactly. The last one I want to talk about is especially interesting. Uh, it's called, I'm going to really try here, a diospirobezoar. Diospirobezoar. Okay. Diospirobezoar. This is specifically, yeah, you're not going to get it from the name. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is specifically a bezoar. This is very specific. Uh, that is caused by eating unripened persimmon fruit. <laughs> 
That is extremely specific. That is very, very specific. Persimmon. Oh, yeah. Nice. So apparently unripe persimmons contain a soluble tannin called, I believe it's shibual, S-H-I-B-U-O-L. Your okay. guess is as good as mine. Now, weirdly, it polymerizes into a hard compound in the acid environment of the stomach. Wow. And basically forms a bezoar. So if you're eating huh. tons of these, I think, these these persimmons, it can cause that problem. I have to I have to warn people, though, I did see um, at least one source saying you can also get a diospirobezoar from eating pineapple. Oh, But as we discussed on the podcast yeah. a few we're times, safe. We're, safe. we're totally safe because... None of us can stand the taste of pineapple, so, so don't worry, dear listeners. <laughs> yeah, your your dear hosts are, are are quite safe from that one. Oh, yuck! Yeah. Now, uh, data shows that nearly all uh, diospirobezoars uh, have to be removed surgically, um, but Ooh. a weird experiment is changing that uh, because researchers found that giving people Coca Cola can actually break up the bezoars. <laughs> I love it. Uh, That's so and it, fun. It, 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 it wasn't even that much. It was like, you know, a, a 20 ounce, like a 20 ounce a day would probably do it. Um, and this is just basic chemistry. Unlike stomach acid, apparently the carbonic acid soda can actually break these down. Okay. Um, and it only works completely alone about 23% of the time. People can just drink like pop and be like, hey, I'm good. Or as some people call it, soda. Sorry, we're from Minnesota. It's called pop. I call it soda. Um, I'm not from Minnesota. Oh, sorry. I go back Rachel and, and forth, actually, because like my Traitor. I'm well, OK, I grew up in a household. My mom was from Ohio slash Massachusetts. Grandpa's from Colorado. Gra- Dad was from Wisconsin. We're lucky I'm not calling it bubbly. <laughs> OK, but nobody calls the drinking fountain the bubbler, right? No. no. OK, good. We're safe. All right. So back to the topic here. Um so it's only 23% of the time. So people do still need some, some kind of intervention that if it doesn't totally work. But um, drinking a bunch of soda has got to be like one of the most pleasant <laughs> medical treatments out there, i got to say. Great. And it didn't have to be Coke. They, they use Coke. I think it's just the, any kind of carbonated yeah. beverage to work. Mm-hmm. So Bizarre's, right. uh, they really are a thing, a real thing. It's not just something from Harry Potter. They are weird. They are real. But let me stress this. Even if by some bizarre chance you happen to have one in your medicine chest. Well, okay, first off, time to update your medicine chest. But secondly, don't try to use them to cure poisoning. <laughs> Call the National Poison Hotline, uh-huh. 1-800-222-1222, a mm-hmm. phone number every parent should have memorized. And uh, that let's, let's stick to that for poison. Yeah, that seems like a good point. Yeah, good, good advice. Yeah. Thanks, Kirk. Uh, my sources this week were, the <laughs> this is a big one, the Ambrose Pare International Military Surgery Forum. Yeah. Okay. Which goes by an acronym, the APIMSF. It rolls off the tongue. Yep. Uh, WebMD, Encyclopedia Britannica, and Wikipedia. We're going to go to a break, and when we come back, it'll be Rachel. Yay. Welcome back, everyone. Um, so the season is truly upon us harvest season. Ah. Uh-huh. Yes, it with, is. Uh-huh. With that, I have... We're getting have, there, yeah. Uh, we, well, yeah, it, some harvesting I've been harvesting tomatoes. Mm. It, it depends what you're harvesting. It truly yeah, does. Yeah, it's, it, it has begun. Yes. Um, with that, I've decided on a topic that is incredibly pedantic, uh, but still has, like, some really outrageous <laughs> oh. things to just blow okay. your mind. 
So uh, okay, I'm we'll ready. start with this. Uh, what do you think of when you think of a berry? A berry? A berry. Oh, List some uh, berries. Blue blueberries. This is such a trick question. Mm-hmm. Strawberries. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like Blackberries. you can tell us none of these things are berries. Logan berries. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kirk, you kind of you kind of got on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like Victoria, you were saying strawberries, gooseberries, raspberries, blueberries, blackberries. Those are generally things that people think of. Uh, mulberries. And not berries. Not berries. They are not. Except for blueberries. blueberries they are the are only berry. berries. Botanically speaking. <gasps> strawberries, definitely not a berry. No. No. So... I am, of course, talking about the botanical definition of a berry. I'm not talking about the culinary definition of a berry in which it is a small, fleshy, most of the time edible fruit. That is the botanical definition of a, or the culinary definition of a berry. Right. Now, I'm a huge pedant. Uh, Yeah. I I love pedantry. But when people bring up the whole, that's not, uh, you know, (laughs) technically a berry. Uh, Congrats! Well, children might be listening, so I'm not going to say what I want to say. <laughs> about that. It's like get over it. <laughs> That's why I'm just going about botanic, and you, you usually don't really care. But I thought that it was kind of strange, and it's it. There are some things that are kind of strange about it. So let's yeah, talk it's about cool that, like what botanically, botanical... a strawberry is not a berry. Yeah, exactly. Are you also going to tell us about poems and droops? Not too much. Um, okay. So. What qualifies as a berry in botany um, is different. Um, In botany, a berry is a fleshy fruit without a stone or a pit, which would be a droop, um, which are things like peaches and mangoes and things like that. Those are droops. Cherries, plums. And cherries and plums. Those are all uh, droops. What about like a gooseberry? I'll get into it. it Uh, So... A berry also comes from one flower that has one ovary. Okay. Okay. Right. That is what a fig. Yes. So, which means, which means overall, that things that are botanically speaking berries are things like blueberries, kiwis, red currants, tomatoes, grapes, eggplants, cucumbers, bananas. And peppers are all berries (laughs) because they come from one flower, right? And that has one uh, ovary. Okay. Meanwhile, aren't gooseberries like closely related to red currants? So are they berries? Yeah. So I think a gooseberry would be. I think a gooseberry could be an actual berry. berry. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. Um. However. Uh, things like raspberries or and blackberries. Um, no, right, no way. Are not berries. They are actually called aggregate fruits, which means that um, the flower uh, had several or ovaries inside of it that got um, pollinated and, and uh, such, and they grew from that one flower. And as they were growing, it had multiple seeds, but because it's multiple ovaries. But in one flower, they are not a berry. That's what each of those little bubbles is. Yes. Right, right. Each little bubble is a little tiny fruit 
from one single ovary within that one flower, which is kind yeah. of crazy. Um, mulberries, uh, which look very similar, they are actually several fruits right. that merge together as they were growing yeah. from multiple flowers. So not just from like multiple yeah. ovaries, but from multiple flowers. They grow to they are so close together that when they start to like grow fruit, it actually uh like merge together and become clusters. Clusters of seedy yeah. deliciousness. Um because if you look at a mulberry yeah. flower, it does have lots of little flowers, lots of little flowers all together. Mm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the other berry that we tend to think of that you listed was strawberries. Um, strawberries themselves are not, uh, they're not technically, a, they're not a berry and they're kind of complicated fruit. So there's something called an accessory yeah, they're fruit. They're so weird. Um, they're weird. called an accessory fruit. And the true fruit of the strawberry, because the red part that we like to eat is not the fruit. <laughs> right. It's the, just a fleshy extra. A, pretty much. Um, the, uh, the little seeds that are all over that, mm-hmm. those are the fruits. Those are the fruits, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they it have didn't some grow sort of from... It didn't grow from... It, it didn't grow from an ovary. No. It grew from right. uh, an extra part somewhere else, out of the not of the flower itself but it kind of was like a swelling around the ovaries and such and just i mean it's yeah. a method that works for them it's, it's, but it's, it's not, wild yeah <laughs> it is not a berry two pedants yes yes <laughs> so <laughs> i <laughs> like rachel <laughs> i just wanted to be a little picky about this. There's been a, there's been a lot of berries <laughs> around where I am, which is wonderful. And I'm talking about culinary speaking berries, not actual berries. And I was yeah, just yeah. thinking mm-hmm. about it. I was like, I want to talk about this. Uh, <laughs> so that was that. That's my topic for today: uh, berries that aren't berries and berries that are berries. Yeah. Go correct all your friends. They'll they'll love they, you for it. Now. Because it came up already in the podcast, <laughs> I think we need to address this. You did talk about this in the past already. You did a whole episode on it. But where does the pineapple fall? Ooh, that is a good question. Um, is it an, was it an aggregate fruit? I forget. I think I think it. I wanted to say it was, but I, I I'm 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 terrified because I know pineapples are so weird. And taste horrible. Terrified is a pretty strong word I just threw out there. I'm not terrified of the answer. Yeah. Um, I didn't see it on the list, but I also wasn't looking into aggregate fruits. I think technically speaking, each individual, like, uh, from what I remember, is each uh, individual, like, cube is from a flower. So... I'm pretty sure that they are an aggregate fruit, but I didn't look into it. Hmm. Uh, I just checked, and yes, pineapple is multiple fruit, an aggregate fruit. Aha! That we have no reason to ever eat. Exactly. Perfect. So yeah. that means that they are related to things like raspberries yeah. and blackberries, which is horrifying. Uh, you know, we're we're really blowing it here. We're never going to get sponsored by Big Pineapple at this rate. Uh, no. 
It's okay. We can go without dole money. <laughs> Fair enough. They haven't reached out to us anyway, so I think we're we're not really we're, uh, we're not throwing anything away. Yeah, we're not really throwing anything away there. So anyway, but a big okay. strawberry. Give us a call. Let's talk. Ooh. <laughs> Uh, anyway, that's uh, what I had for my topic this week. Um, my sources are my old botany m- notes from college and um, a good refresher <laughs> nice. on uh, Wikipedia, actually. So, thanks. I'm amazed you still have your... I've still got some old botany yeah. notes and whatnot, so I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah. And I was in school a lot longer ago than you were, so... <laughs> Uh, so thanks everyone for listening this week. We will see you next week. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks everyone for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.